Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Hey friends, it's Paul from Connecticut, and we're back after a week off. If you don't know, I take about every seventh week off. Sometimes this is going to line up with the podcast, sometimes this isn't, but this is an idea I took from Sean McCabe, and it's really helped me focus both on things I want to get done in a six-week work block and also a reminder to shift into that non-doing mode in those seventh weeks. If you want to check out a good podcast about it, you can go back a number of episodes and see my conversation with Sean McCabe about this. It's pretty cool. Today's conversation is with Malcolm Ocean, and this is a far-ranging conversation. We talk about so much. We talk about him taking an alternative path early in his career, right after college, and how he thought about money getting time and freedom to experiment, and his interest in helping groups level up. So a lot of what I talk about is helping individuals level up. He's thinking a lot about the groups and organizations, and we have a pretty fascinating conversation about this. Without further ado, let's go. Stop supporting the broken health insurance system with your hard-earned dollars. Go to joincrowdhealth.com now and experience freedom from health insurance. Right now, you can get your first three months for just $99 per month. That's almost 50% off the normal price and a lot less than a high-deductible healthcare plan. Just go to joincrowdhealth.com and use promo code BOUNDLESS at signup. That's joincrowdhealth.com, promo code BOUNDLESS. Mandatory disclaimer, CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It is a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Today, I'm talking with Malcolm Ocean. He's a fellow wanderer of The Pathless Path, and as is often the case, hard to describe, much like myself. He runs a software company, Complice, which helps people turn big goals into day-to-day reality, We're going to dive into that and go deeper into what do we mean about goals and all that and tying it to um, our day-to-day experience. More broadly, though, I think from my vantage point, Malcolm appears to be incredibly curious just about how we make things happen and not just things, things we actually want to do, things that are easy to do for us and how we do that at the individual and group level. Welcome to the podcast, Malcolm. Thanks. It's great to be here. Question I Been, wanted uh, to... Been s- for a while. 
Yeah. Uh, question I wanted to dive into first uh, was what's the first goal you remember setting for yourself? Mm. Yeah. The first like really explicit goal that I set that was like, this is a goal was um, in 2012, I decided I was going to record an album of original music. And I, I spent the year doing that. And I had a, I used um, Zig Ziglar's kind of goal setting process for that, which I turned into, um, which was part of the inspiration for Complice. Um, but I'm trying to think about like, you know, even earlier, like I'm like, okay, I think maybe when I was a kid, I had a goal to learn how to do a backflip on a trampoline, which I succeeded at. Um, and then there's always, you know, those kind of implicit goals that you don't really set for yourself, but like, you know, they're kind of there. It's like, okay, I'm doing karate. And then I'm like, obviously I want to get a black belt, but that's not really my goal in a sense. It's just sort of like, there I am in the context of karate. Everyone's trying to get a black belt. There I am in the context of school and everybody's trying to get good grades and, you know, stuff like that. So it's, um, stuff like that a bit too. I mean, I think I was pretty self-directed, but it was often a bit more spontaneous. Like I just like made a little video game because I wanted to and stuff like that. Yeah, it seems like something that really interests you is about that. Like, how do we actually get to our goals? Are they uh, given to us by society or the systems we're a part of? And how do we find the things we actually want to do? It's it's sort of something, I mean, on my own path being self-employed, it's kind of hard to figure that out at first how have mm. you come to want to increasingly think about that problem yeah well the first thing i'll say is that like the the way that i think about goals um the the workshops that that we run the uh, goal crafting intensives we came up with this articulation of what a goal is um which is a recognizable and desired state in the future uh, that causes you to act in the present so as to realize that future. Um, and so it doesn't need to have a number. Um, it doesn't need to have a, uh, you know, a, a state of completion where you're, you're definitely done forever. Like it could be like, you want to maintain that state ongoingly. Um, but the point is it is in the future because you can't, you can't, tr if you're trying to change the present, you have a whole different kind of problem. Um, and it's something that you, you know, and you're orienting towards, um, because it's it's meaningful to you and it and it matters to you, um, and so yeah. So with that in mind, it's like figuring out what do I actually want. I mean, that is a huge part of the puzzle. And one thing that I encourage people to do is to try. Um, if you feel like most of your goals currently come from the outside and they're like about other people's ideas and recognition and stuff like that, then I have this uh, suggestion, which is to do something that you want to do um, and like, don't tell anybody about it for three years. Like just pick a tiny, it could be a very tiny thing, you know, like it could be going to the woods and, you know, arranging some sticks in a way that you like or something, but you, you don't show it to anybody and you don't tell anybody about it for like a long time. And so it's like by set, setting yourself that constraint, you have to come up with something that like you just want to do for you. Um, again, really doesn't have to be a big thing. It could just take an afternoon, like, it's, you know, but I think there is something valuable, like, and that even just doing small things like that helps you hone your taste. Um, and ultimately, you know, it's not that like social regard is irrelevant to the process of goal setting. I mean, I, I, I think there's a lot of ways in which our sense of who we are 
you know, comes from other, other people and how we interact with them. And that's okay. Um, I would say for myself, like part of how I knew that I wanted to pursue having a lifestyle that was, um, not just working a job, but being able to, you know, run this company and do my own thing. Like part of how that was part of how that came clear for me is that like in high school, I was reading a bunch of the, the OG lifestyle design bloggers, you know, Leo Babautov's and habits and, um, Steve Pavlina. Anyway, some of the other folks, you know, the original kind of bloggers, I forget what actually what Steve Pavlina's work thing was, but I was reading a bunch of people who were like, you know, making money from blogging or from uh, a little software thing that they had. And, and that gave me the sense that like, that was a thing someone that that was a thing you could do, which I think most people don't have as much of a sense of that being real. And that's part of what, you know, I imagine your podcast is trying to do is like convey the stories of people who are living, um, alternative, um, lifestyles essentially um and so so it starts to in some ways make it less alternative it starts to make it be a thing you know you can be a type of guy um if you want um and so there's there's still space to be furtherly unconventional but like if we can make uh if we can make it if we can have more role models for um living a lifestyle um that's uh more self-directed i think that's really really powerful yeah, I, I had a similar experience, I think, from 2014 to 2016, 17 with podcasts. It was just people in my ear explaining things that I had never imagined before. So it's these new paths, new models, new ideas of how to show up in the world that I was like, oh, I can do these things. But I think the interesting thing you're talking about is sort of practicing action or sort of just taking the first step to, to agency or a little more ownership. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think we can get to this state of like 100% we're controlling every action, right? We, um, but shifting it, even 1% can have pretty profound effects. Do you have an example of something you did that you didn't tell people for a few years? Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess this, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this was how I got it. I think this was like, I've always been pretty down to do my own thing even when nobody was um even when nobody was telling me what like telling me about it or i didn't know anybody else who was doing it like i think for me it was this wasn't ever quite my bottleneck the the suggestion to like you know go out in the woods or whatever came in response to a friend of mine who was saying like i don't know if i've ever done anything not for social approval and i was like wow well yeah <laughs> how about you just try <laughs> this <laughs> don't tell me about it either the suggestion i don't want to know if you yeah. Yeah. So I don't actually know if this advice worked because you know the the friend the friend didn't tell me right. Um, so, so I have told people one thing that does appear to work. I'll just throw it out there in the mix. I've had a lot of people tell me similarly. They've never taken a walk without a destination. So this is a very oh simple- yeah oh yeah 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 that's <laughs> this is a very simple yeah. one you can do is just go for a walk but just start Absolutely. taking random turns and even if you're not random like i don't know it doesn't even matter where you stand on the free will debate i think it's almost this mindset of like pretending you at least have some control um and taking well, random and, turns and, yeah i mean i would say there's a sense in which like yeah like like i don't know the free will debate it seems not a useful level of abstraction for a lot of this stuff, but it's like, like obviously in some sense, people are going around making choices and you can like refine your, your taste and your capacity to choose by doing it. 
And yeah, so definitely that's, I, I almost mentioned it myself in some ways, something about going for a walk and just exploring, you know, and I'm actually, um, I've got some upcoming travel, like I'm going to be in Europe and I have the, the first couple of weeks, I'm going to be hanging out with friends in Portugal and that's kind of planned out. But then literally the extent to which I have my, my ne next two weeks planned is a train and Europe. Like, I don't have anything more specified than that. I have a hazy sense of like, I want to see some really old architecture, like, like so old that there just isn't any of it in North America because I haven't really had the chance to see that before. But like, that's going to be, I think, uh, an edge for me of just like really following my own whims. Um, yeah. And finding out what I want and being opportunistic and being like, oh, I want to spend an extra day in the city because this thing is really cool or whatever. Yeah. This is but you can just do it in your own backyard. Just like go in your backyard and just wander around. Like, yeah. This has been a common thing I've seen a lot of people on unconventional paths say is they sort of have some practice of practicing these like wandering things in their life, whether it be their work, um, travel, personal life. But having the sense that, oh, I need to practice this stepping into the unknown because that is going mm -hmm. to provide me the learnings or the wisdom about what to do next. Um, yeah. And it's rather unintuitive to do this until you're on such a path. Is this something you've learned to embrace the longer you've been self-employed? That's a good question. Um and maybe it might be worth backtracking and just sort of explain when you became self-employed and um, what that initial leap was like. Yeah, so I I think I've been technically self-employed for my entire adult life. Um, but I, the first half of that was more kind of like a friend and I in high school started a web design business and we didn't really have very many clients at all and definitely had very, very few in, you know, um, when we, when we went off to university for the first few years. Um, and, um, but then when I, when I was about halfway through my undergrad degree, I, I sort of thought about it and I was like, I don't want to have to get a job when I graduate. Like that just seems bad. I don't want that. Um, I want to be able to, uh, you know, wake up and do what I feel like. And so I, I set a goal in essence of having some sort of passive income project um, that would allow me to not have to get a job when I graduated. And, um, and I had no idea what that was going to be when I first decided that I was going to do that. I was just like, I'm going to figure this out. And, um, and so I started, you know, brainstorming ideas and so forth. And what I, what I ultimately came up with was this goal setting system, um, based on this paper notebook that, um, that Seth Godin made out of Zig Ziglar's, um, system. Um, and, um, yeah, so I made this kind of, yeah, digital thing inspired by that. And, uh, indeed by the time I graduated, I didn't have to get a job. Now I wasn't actually making enough money from the app when I graduated to not have to work. Um, but I was, uh, somehow having made a, you know, kind of productivity app or whatever, um, caused people to want to hire me one-on-one -on -one to just like coach them or whatever. And so without any particular training or credentials, I mean, I, 
I'd gone to some workshops and stuff and I, I knew some things and I read lots of books and tried lots of experiments myself, but I found myself in the position where I was, um, I was able to take on a role of helping people sort through their stuff. And so I was making, you know, this much money from the app and this much money from the coaching. And then, um, over the, the following year, I scaled up the money I was making from the app to the point where I now, I now still do a bit of coaching, but I don't like have to do it. Um, and, um, yeah. And so I've, I've never had a full-time indefinite job, if you see what I mean. Like I've had full-time yeah. internships, um, handful of those, and I've had like indefinite kind of ongoing part-time or contract stuff. But, um, I've never just like had a job that was like by default going to be my job until I quit. Um, yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's so much how I want to live. Like, uh, in so many ways, it's just like the feeling of, I wake up and I do whatever I feel like. And it's like, at this point, even if I were to have a job, I would want it to feel like that. I would want it to be, I wake up and in the context of having this job, what do I feel like doing? And I would want to have a job where what I feel like doing serves the job, like where it, it you know, satisfies my employer or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I worked 10 years before I became self-employed, so I sort of had to unlearn things, I had sort of taught myself the lesson that I couldn't really do the things I want to do because work is something mm. you have to do for other people in order to get the paycheck. And I think so many people yeah. learn this lesson. Did you have role models growing up that had done this differently or did you just decide like that model wasn't for you? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I kind of come from a family of entrepreneurs, like, um, on various scales. Um, the main, like, if I sort of just trace out my family, like one or two branches away, the main person that like, I don't think ran a business is like my grandmother, but I mean, she helped my grandfather with the TV repair business that he had at one point. So, you know, that doesn't really count. And then I'm like, yep, those aunts and uncles have a business that uncle has a business, that aunt, no, she's a nurse, you know, um, like, but like, it's all, you know, almost wow. all of my family has, e even if they also worked full-time jobs, which sometimes they did, they were like also at time at other times running companies or, you know, doing various ventures. So, um, like none of, none of them had the kind of, um, like lifestyle I have where the, the software runs itself. And I am sort of, you know, like, like most of my time is spent staring at the nature of collective intelligence, like not working on complex software or anything like that. Like that's, that's what I want to do with my time is look at how, how does, how does collective wisdom work in small groups and how do we scale it up? Um, and so, yeah, but I would say, I would say like, in some ways I had a lot of inspiration, but it was funny. Like my dad didn't really understand the, the business for years. You know, he would ask me, he would say things like, Oh, so your business is successful. Like, uh, have you thought of having some employees? And I'm like, Oh, this is so funny. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, Dad, uh, that's not the point. Like, I don't, I don't need employees. Employees would just be more work. Like, and 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 finally, I conveyed it to him where I was like, so I've got this software. You see, I mean, he, I mean, he understands software. He was programming on punch cards back in the day, but like, um, but you know, plugging that into business was a whole other thing. So I was like, I've got this software, and when I first started with, you know, with Complus. I was emailing people every day to ask them like what they were doing toward their goals. Like that, you know, before I even wrote any code, that's what I was doing. 
And um, and now the software, and, and that took me, you know, an hour per week per customer. And now I have, you know, 100 customers at the time or whatever it was. And so, like, that would be two and a half employees to, like, send these emails every week to these 100 customers. But instead, the software does it automatically. And he goes, oh, and I guess it does. I guess the software never phones in sick. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay, you get it. <laughs> you're you're picking, picking it up. Like why, why, you know, by leveraging software, it's like, I don't, I don't need employees to be making a bunch happen. Well, that having, yeah. having employees is sort of this metric of success of that's how you prove you're growing, you're getting bigger, you're more successful. It's funny. I was, yeah. I was freelancing when I first started quitting my job and that's what a lot of older um, relatives would ask me. Are you going to hire employees? Do you want to build a company? Are you going to get an office? It's like all these things would stress me out and add costs. I I do not want to do this in the short term. And then just building a digital business is just really hard to explain to people because we sort of look at work as semi-performance. It's like putting on a certain piece of clothing, going to an office, performing the ritual mm. of doing that. And when you take that away, people are like, what are you doing? I mean, somebody yesterday said to me, Paul, well, Paul doesn't ha- really have a job. He doesn't work. Um, and I, I just kind of laugh these things off at this point. But um and it's funny because to me, like the upsides of working this way are so large. It, it's kind of crazy that more people don't want to shift in this direction. Yeah. I mean, some people need more structure. For like, sure. Just in terms of how, like, you know, they, they want to not be making strategic decisions, I guess. Like, um, and and I, I've had to come to terms with that. Like, it's you know, it's, it's maybe not for everybody and that's fine. But I think there are a lot of people who would like it a lot. And, um You've said that utopia is when everyone just does what they feel like doing and the situation is such that everyone doing what they feel like results in everyone's needs getting met. Where does this vision come from and uh, what what are you doing to kind of shift things in Mm. that direction? Well, it's so related to what we've just been talking about, right? Like my image of waking up in the context of a job and doing what I, you know, doing what I feel like, but having that serve whatever organization is hiring me such that they, you know, are empowered to, you know, pay me and support me and all of that. It's, you know, that's, that's very much, you know, a small scale instance of this kind of, um, utopian quality. And, um, and I take utopia very seriously. Um, but it's also like actually iterating towards it is a very tough puzzle, right? Um, where did that come from? Yeah. Um, something like, I mean, there's been a lot of talk in our circles on Twitter about um, like non-coercion as a um, as a thing, and, and and that's a little a little weird, you know, because it's it's framed as a negation. Um, but flipping it around and saying, you know, doing what you want, um, then the puzzle just becomes, well, how do you how do you get really good at wanting, right? Like, you know, how do you get really good at being plugged into you know, what will actually satisfy you? Like, like, you know, like, I think pretty much everybody's had the experience of craving a snack and eating the snack and it's not that tasty and you're not even paying that much attention while yeah. you're eating it. And then you're like, after the, why did I do that? Or like, you know, it's, it's 4am and you're like, I just spent the last four hours browsing some rant, there's some weird subreddits 
you know, and I didn't, that was, that wasn't even satisfying. Like, it's not like I was having fun and slacking off from work. Like I wasn't even having fun. Like, um, and so I, you know, the skill of finding out what actually deeply nourishes you, you know, like if you're going to play video games, what are the video games that you will love that you will like think back on so fondly of like, wow, that was so, so much fun to, you know, build that Factorio base with my friends or to, you know, go through that whole story adventure arc of this thing or to like get really good at the skills of this thing versus like, you know, some video game where you're just like, wow, I just sunk a hundred hours into that and I, I might as well have been working for, or I might as well have been working a menial job for all it felt meaningful. Like, yeah. you know, it had, it had feedback loops that were compelling at the time, right? Like that's why I played it, you know, cause it gave me some feeling of like, ah, I can do the stuff. But like, I, it, it was not interesting. It was not satisfying. Right. Like, and so, um, where am I going with that? Yeah. So like cultivating the capacity, first of all, to just like feel what serves you, like what, what, what in fact, is deeply satisfying and nourishing to oneself. And then also developing one's capacity to look outwards and, um, and love and empathize and, um, and see how you can make the world a better place either for, for individuals or by, you know, uh, creating some, some art or some business or, you know, some offering to the world that, you know, is, is better. And then the third thing is like, it's not just about, you know, empathizing, but it's about actually being able to see, other people's perspectives and um well it's a few things it's like being able to see beyond the assumptions that you might be making where um like you know people were assuming productivity apps had to look a certain way and had to involve lots of organizing big lists of stuff that you have to do and i kind of saw beyond that assumption and created a an, uh, an app that looks like a to-do list app but has no backlog there just isn't one you can't you can't backlog anything in it um, if you don't do something today, it, it goes on the list of things you thought you'd do yesterday. Um, and now you have a new day, um, and you can go grab that stuff, but it's not, it's not building up. It's not, um, you know, it's not there to be wrangled. Um, so I'm really, I'm really trying to get to the core of the thing here, right? This, this sense of like utopia is when everybody just does what, what they want. And the situation is such that this results in everybody getting their needs met. I don't want to overly reify yeah. the concept of needs here either, but it's like, um, well, it's like everybody does what they want and everybody's satisfied with how that plays out. Right. Like people are finding the work that is meaningful and satisfying and like, um, yeah. And maybe it's more helpful. Maybe it's helpful to talk about how this feels on a small scale. Yeah. I, th um, I think an example for like me or is, um, what what we think we want, right? I, I went through this. What I thought I want was a prestigious job and impressive credentials. The experience of actually doing that over time was not ultimately fulfilling, but it actually took this very deep awareness and constant reflection to understand that. And then mm. I think the challenge in doing this is that we're just constantly learning and like, just wrong about things right so mm. what i thought i wanted was to become a freelance consultant but then about 15 in months into self-employment i sort of realized the thing i kept coming back to was writing without mm. any sort of incentive or thing and i'm like oh 
this is might be what I want to keep doing. So then I sort of made a commitment and elevated that in my like attention. I kept doing more of it. And then I've sort of just made decisions around making sure that that impulse doesn't get destroyed. So it's not even right. like, even for me, like I'm not aiming. I didn't aim when I published my book to become an Amazon number one bestseller, or New York Times author. Those things ultimately don't matter to me. But the thing I want to keep doing is writing. So it's something I need to keep paying attention to. And I'm also working with the assumption that it could be like that could stop being true at some point. Um, so it sort of right, requires right. Like this reflective practice. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and that's the hard thing is our desires and interests and what actually is fulfilling over a long stretch of time changes. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's something about developing your own internal compass rather than, um, I don't know, it's, it's subtle it's, and it's hard to talk about. But like I'm thinking about I, I, I've sometimes quipped that like if you think uh, if you think Twitter inherently incentivizes um sort of like uh, outrage yeah. or something, then you're confused about the nature of incentives. <laughs> like um, likes and retweets aren't inherently meaningful or valuable or rewarding. Um, you know, if you get enough retweets, then, you know, you can plausibly make some money based on just the fact that you now have a bunch of attention that you kind of get to steer a little bit. But it's pretty hard to actually use that like well. Like it's, it's, you know, like there's a reason that people are linking, you know, proverbially linking to their sound clouds in the, uh, you know, replies of a really viral tweet. Um, because like mostly you don't actually make money from SoundCloud and people are like using the attention to get people to check out a little bit of their art rather than trying to like actually sell something, which mostly you can't actually do in the replies of the tweet. People try. I mean, it's a thing that shows up, you know, I've seen people selling these like galaxy wall lights or whatever that are all the rage these days, but like, um, yeah, and so it's like, you know, Twitter only incentivizes outrage if you, if uh, among people who don't understand that likes aren't inherently meaningful, like they, they don't like, if, if you don't want to deal with a bunch of people being outraged on your, uh, on your Twitter timeline or on, in your replies, then you are not incentivized to do outrageous things. Like, because it's just like what you actually want does not match onto that. Um, and so it's like, similarly, you know, what the incentives are for, for different situations, it's like, they become a lot more refined once you really understand what you want. Um, cause you realize that the things that sort of seem like the incentives are not actually what's driving you. How, how has that changed for you over time? Like what, it, what does your process look like of getting in touch with what you really want? Um, over short stretches of time and longer stretches of time. Yeah, I guess there's a few things. Like, like one is I sometimes, I sometimes uh, refactor my goals, and what that consists of is making a list of things that are on a level kind of below, below actually all of my goals. There's sort of smaller things that I seem to want to do something about. Basically, I ask myself, what are the things that I'm trying to make happen right now? And I, you know, at any given time, I might have like 20 or 30 of those or something like that. Um, Do you have an example of one but, of those? Yeah, like I might, you know, I might be a thing of like, oh, I want to, 
um, you know, I, I want to make the number of accomplice customers go up. Yeah. Right? right. It's like a thing, a thing. Um, but on a totally different level, it might be like, oh, I want to like, you know, finish making my desk nice because it still needs a few more components or something like that. Um, or it might be, uh, yeah. And anyway, and then I would sort of, I would look at all those and I'd look at my goals and I would say, how do the, like, how does my intuitive sense of all the things I'm trying to cause to happen, like map onto these, these goals that I've set? Um, or have they come kind of out of alignment and I've sort of got this big goal, but it's not actually in touch with what I feel like I want. But other times it's like the big goal is actually feels really clear. And I've been doing a bunch of stuff that's nebulously related, but isn't actually moving that forward. Like I set a goal to learn, um, uh, learn essentially, well, there's a, there's a therapy modality called coherence therapy and they have a related coaching modality called just called coherence coaching. And the, the fundamental principles of all of it are the same. And I had a goal to learn that really deeply, but I ended up tracking a bunch of stuff under the goal that wasn't really actually moving me towards that. And when I looked at it, it was like, yeah, I still care about that. Like I wanted, I want to achieve that, not just, you know, doing my own therapeutic healing process, which I was sort of tracking a bit under this goal, but like no amount of doing that is going to cause me to like grok this technique um, and so on, uh, even though it overall does help. Um, and so, so that's then a thing of like, yeah, I still want this deeper thing, but, um, but I'm not really moving towards it. But I recently, you know, had a, um, a bit of a shift where um, what I thought I was doing with my life and where, where I was and all of that has kind of, um, yeah, all come up rooted earlier this year. Um, and um, wh when I, I realized that I, uh, didn't want to be in uh, the marriage that uh, that I was in, and um, and so in the wake of that, it's like I noticed there were all of these things that I actually wanted that I sort of that I didn't want in the context of that relationship because of the nature of the constraints of that relationship. But that once I took a step back, it was like, oh, where do I want to live? maybe I want to go back to San Francisco where I, you know, was for many years. Like, and how, how would I go about making that happen? Um, you know, I just, I, I spent a bunch of years traveling there and I have a ton of friends that could be actually where I want to live. And like watching that arise now that the constraints had fallen away. It's like, similarly, you know, like I imagine this occurs for lots of the kinds of people that you're working with is like, you know, when they leave their job, they suddenly realize, wait, you know, I don't actually want to live in this city or I actually, I don't, I don't care that much about having a car now that I'm not commuting and I'd rather just like have a bike or, you know, other things kind of cascade as a result of, you know, it's like you have one piece of clarity and then it actually begets more clarity. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. We sort of, I think we sort of assume the things around us are the things we want. So if, if we're starting with that assumption, if we're in a sort of life path that is very um, predictable we are going to start tricking ourselves into thinking that's what we actually want. And mm. like people will say things to me like, I could never not own a home. I, I need a mm. home base. Right. So mm -hmm. I've been semi nomadic for three or four years and I don't have a strong reaction in the other direction because what I've realized is that I had unquote untested um, 
beliefs about what I wanted before. Mm -hmm. I thought I needed a home base too. And then I went nomadic and I realized, oh, I'm still kind of pretty happy, if not happier doing this, which means I was totally wrong previously. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I've sort of tested this different approach and revealed these uh, hidden preferences. Um, and I think yeah. that that is probably a big um, opportunity for people figuring out what they want is kind of asking themselves, what are the hidden preferences that my current life circumstances can't reveal? Mm. Yeah, and like, what are the assumptions? Like, I think about this a lot in the context of design, where people kind of, they they locally have a sense of what they want. They're like, oh, I don't like this font, or I, I this app is too slow, yeah. right? Like, they, they kind of kind of minor local improvements. But, um, but, but so few people can, can see like, no, this app is paradigmatically confused or like the whole basic interaction pattern of this design, you know, of this design constraint of like how this app is, is made is like, is like backwards, you know? And so it's like people, people aren't able to access a sense of what they want. That's sort of beyond like one step away from what they currently are seeing. It's like, you know, oh, geez, it would be nice if, you know, uh, whatever, like, yeah, I'm not thinking of good examples right now, but yeah. <laughs> Well, um, and that's one thing that I've been cultivating in the arena of design. Like I have this short series on YouTube um, uh, of, of videos, I'll probably record another one today about my new headphones um, or earbuds. That is uh, the series is called what if it were good though. And basically it's like when I get a product that I hate, I just do a rant about like why it's awful. And then I try to just like blank slate, like what does this thing actually want to be? What would make it be actually good and try to like, really stretch the boundaries of my thinking to point at um, something that that's not just marginal improvements, but it's like a whole different fundamental paradigm. Like what problems is really trying to solve? Could we approach it in a totally different way? Like, you know, yeah, stuff like that. And so it's like, similarly with your life, I think you can kind of, it's possible to sort of like really set aside the assumptions and be like, well, well, why do I want a home base? You know, what is that about? Can I go deeper? Can I go deeper? Um, and um, and um, I guess another thing is maybe like, what is the best version of not having a home base, for instance? Or what's the, the best version of, um, you know, if I, if I assume that I'm going to be traveling for the next few months, how, is, how would that go best? Even before I've actually decided that that's what I'm going to do. It's like, how, can I... Can I sketch out the best possible version of that world? Um, and I think people could benefit a lot from doing a lot more like imagining of what the, what they want. I think me too, honestly. Like I, I don't think I have flexed my imagination muscle nearly as much as I could. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah. a hard thing to do, and it it's an interesting time in the sense that like the internet provides an abundance of information, and this can be good for generating new ideas but it's also very easy to generate ideas against things, right? And I think this is sort of tangentially related to something you wrote about in your essay, Towardsness and Awayness. Like mm -hmm. towardsness, you're sort of aiming at something and it can be defined, but awayness is sort of unconstrained. And yeah, you can you can go away in any direction. Yeah, and this will probably, con this might confuse people the way I'm going to, to flip this and sort of say a tangential thing. But 
Um, similarly, you can sort of be against something. Um, but by doing that, you're being very specific and you're basically dismissing all potential possibility. So, mm-hmm. um, Martin, I mean, Martin Gary writes about this in the revolt of the public. Like people are often like people are often not for anything politically these days. That is a very common like failure mode is like, I am a Democrat because I hate the Republicans. I am a conservative because I hate liberals. Right. But they're not inherently for anything because the exploration of finding what you're for is unconstrained and infinite in possibilities. Mm, and and overwhelming and scary. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it feels yeah, and so, bad. So there's some policies, but the policies are mostly sort of locally trying to just solve some acute pain. Yeah. 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 I, I, I like to say I, you know, I basically resonate with everybody, like almost no matter what, what writing I read that's, you know, political or activist or whatever else, um, left ring, wing, right ring, reactionary, conservative, um, uh, you know, ultra progressive. I basically agree with everybody's complaints. Yeah, <laughs> on, on all sides, every direction. Because they're defined and specific, every, right? But I also think that everybody's proposed solutions are complete shit. <laughs> right. Like you know, it's like are are the you know are the the Trumpers or whatever you know right about like ways in which the um you know mainstream whatever has gotten out of touch with what absolutely. For sure, you know, are the progressives right that like, you know, certain rights are being, you know, ignored in certain ways? Like, absolutely. Sure. Are the libertarians right that like, really, we should not be like making so many things into laws? Like, absolutely. Sure. Are the, you know, people who are talking about communism or whatever, like, right, uh, in terms of like, uh, like, you know, we need to really like think about our social contract and like design systems, you know, like the utopian I was the utopia I was talking about, the like, design systems where everybody's needs are getting met by what everybody's doing. Like absolutely. Do any of them have the slightest clue about how to actually organize things so that even their own thing gets satisfied, let alone everybody else's? Not at all. Um well it's what you it's, say. It's, it's awareness can't aim. Yeah. Right? You can't aim um, at anything. You're just against. <laughs> well and the other issue is like Part of part of what happens is people are like, I have this problem, so I need to solve it. And the, the solution they propose would create problems for a bunch of other people. And then those people would fight back. <laughs> and so you get these um whereas if you can find a win-win, then now people aren't fighting your your solution because it's also their solution. Yeah. And- um and that's kind of the only way to actually have sustainable politics. Um well, and then is is to be finding win wins. Yeah, and I want I want to tie this back to, like I can tie everything back to self employment or uh, unconventional yeah, yeah. paths. But right. I think when you're when you're on your own path, your solutions look stupid too, right? You're sort of like, okay, this other path can't work for me, and I'm going to take an unconventional path, and then I'm going to follow this. St- Thing that looks silly or stupid in the short term but you're sort of aiming at your like intuition i think like you have yeah. this deep sense that like there's this like future state that can be found and i have like some sort of like connection to myself that tells me this is possible 
And I think that that's what makes like often what turns out to be bold solutions, even like politically mm. or economically, the most interesting. It often starts with this deep connection to intuition. And I think this is something you're super interested in, and um, it, which is how do you scale that to the group level? which nobody ever talks about. Like I used to do organizational yeah. change in big organizations and it's basically just the study of individual incentives. Um, but nobody ever says, mm. how do we do a goal at the group level? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so the, the individual is a great, a great case study um, partially because you've got higher bandwidth in some ways inside your own brain than you do between people. Um, there's pros and cons to that. Um, partially because it's all right there. Like, you know, uh, and, and there's sort of a, in some sense, a pretty locally, uh, a pretty local choice making agent who can kind of like assess all of the stuff and go, Hmm, how do I, how am I going to relate to this? Um, but, but also because as an individual, like it's right there in the name, you are not dividable. Um, if you can't get along with yourself, there's no way to like agree to disagree. And one of you moves to, you know, yeah. the East coast, um, and the other stays on the West coast. Like you are, you, you gotta, you gotta learn how to get along with yourself. Um, and so that provides a, a really useful case study in, in a lot of this stuff. Um, but then, but then, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't sort of scale up directly, but just speaking about the like internal case study, it's like, um, you know, you might find that like you have some internal tension about something you want to do, you know, Oh, part of me wants to like, um, uh, oh, let's take one of this, take one that's like directly alive for me right now. Um, part of me wants to take my coat, uh, you know, I have a bunch of coaching calls scheduled for tomorrow, which is my last day here in SF. And part of me wants to take those coaching calls and, you know, satisfy my, my sense of my, um, you know, um, relationship with my clients and like, you know, make the money that I get from those calls. Cause if I don't, if I don't take the calls, I'm not getting paid, you know? Um, and you know, I have those various things that I want. Also part of me wants to not have my last day here be full of calls. Like I want to be able to like spend more time with my friends here. Um, what do I do about that? Like, can I find a way to, to kind of honor both of those voices and figure out what it is on net that I want? And, and clearly <clears throat> I can't directly satisfy both. Like I can't both take the calls and not take the calls. Like, but like if I go up some levels, um, and this connects to some of the perceptual control theory stuff I was talking about on Johnny's podcast that you mentioned listening to, it's like, if I go up some levels, can I find a place where it is clear how I want to resolve that tension? And there's no right answers there. There's no objective right answers. Like, Talking about this situation from the outside, which I'm actually doing right now, even though it's me, like I'm not actually inside the conflict, feeling into what it is that I most deeply want here. I'm just talking about it as a hypothetical that happens to be my like, you know, hypothetical that I'm live working with. But it's still I'm still looking at it over here. I'm not like opening up into it um, from the outside. There's no right answer. There's no. Oh, well, you should definitely cancel the calls and spend more time in person or. Oh, no, you should definitely uphold the. Nope. There's, there's just, what do I actually want given everything? And, um, and so then the puzzle, when you start to, when you start to look at like groups and so on is, can you find a, what do we actually want given everything? That's not a compromise. 
And it's not a uh, one person sort of deferring to another, kind of going, oh, well, I guess we can just do your thing. But they're kind of like, eh. but it's like the, the the situation is able to surface enough of the relevant factors and for people to, to feel enough in sync that they're actually, everybody is like, oh, yeah, that's clearly the thing to do, right? And you can see this with tiny decisions, right? It's like... <clears throat> You know, you're out with some people and you're like, oh, we should go for dinner. And someone's like, how about Mexican? And somebody else is like, nah, Mexican gives me gas. Like, I can't handle it. Like, okay, cool. Um, you know, what about like, uh, you know, what about we go to this, you know, sandwich shop instead? And somebody else is like, no, no, they don't serve, you know, uh, gluten-free sandwiches. So I can't go there. And it's like, okay, um, hmm, what do we want? How about Thai food? And everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, Thai food. That sounds great. There's this moment when it's like, yes, that is what we want. Right? Like that's a really tiny example. And that's not like, that's not a like devising a new solution, like a win-win in, in like a really deep way. But it is like, there's that moment when the group goes, oh yeah, Thai food. That's what we want. Now, suppose the Thai restaurant is closed. Now, oh, shit, what, what do we do now? Well, it, it turned out that what we wanted, well, what we thought we wanted is actually not available. And so we now need to figure out again, what do we want? And, um... And so there's this ongoing, like, how do we get in sync enough to really get clear on that? Because again, with a compromise, nobody's actually fully satisfied. And so you remain in a state of conflict. It's actually like you're pulling still, like trying to get a little bit more for yourself versus for, you know, versus like allowing. And that's the, the whole frame of compromise as a type of solution is um, profoundly limited and flawed. You know, it's, it's arguably... Yeah, it's it's sacrifice, right? And and like you know, suppose you and I were on a canoe trip and um your uh your lunch bag like fell into the water and we lost it, right? To a, a fish or a just the water. And so now we've got, you know, we got a day left of this canoe trip and we only have one person's worth of food, kind of. Like I'm going to share my food with you. Thank you. Not <laughs> not as like a favor to you. But because I want you to, A, be relatively happy, B, be nourished enough to keep canoeing. Like, and and so it's like, okay, we're now in a situation of scarcity, but like, I'm going to share with you. And and it's not, again, it's not even quite kindness. It's just as a two person system, obviously the thing to do is divide the food in the way that is going to nourish us collectively as best as possible. Right. Um, now, if we were if we were kayaking, say instead of canoeing, uh, and we each yeah. had our own little kayak, and it, you know, and we weren't we, we weren't really like that close friends, we just happened to have set out together. I might have been like, you know what, man, I, I just want to keep kayaking for two more days. Like, you can go back. You know, here's a cliff bar, right, to get you back to the what? Like, you know, depending on the situation. Um, but like, if I want to keep hanging out with you, then I want to make sure that your your needs are getting met and so forth. And and that would be genuinely what I wanted. Um, similarly, it's like you know, suppose you have a uh, a couple, right? And they're they're going out to parties, and the um, uh, let's say the you know um, the uh, the man is often getting tired and you know wants to go um, home early, and the the woman like wants to stay out later, and um, and so they're kind of feeling into, okay, we're out at this party. What, 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 or 
Actually, before I, I, I gestured as if it is a pattern, but I actually want to first just focus on a local situation. So they're at this party. The man wants to go home. The woman's like, I want to stay out. And they feel into it. Like, what do we want there for? And, and, and again, because they are not, because they are two individuals, not a single individual, they do have an option of like one of them leaving and the other staying. Um, but, but they also really highly value being together, whether that's just because they want to spend time with each other and, you know, be, be a unit or whether that's just literally like if one of them drives back, the other's got to like take an expensive taxi or something. Um, and so, so they want to stay, they want to stay together at the party, but they're sort of realizing, oh, mm, you know, or they want to stay together. Um, hang on, let me just center a little bit. Like, so it might be that on this particular night, the the woman's like, okay, cool. You know, I'm fine leaving this this party. Like, we you know, we can just head home. Or it might be that the man is like, you know what? I'm actually fine staying, like, you know, a bit longer because you really want to be here. Again, there's no right answers to any of this. And importantly, and so so one version of this is where the person is actually is actually like resentful. Like they actually don't want to stay or they don't want to leave. They don't feel like their desire has been adequately held by the whole of the two of them such that the decision is really including that desire. And in that case, you've got like a breakdown of, of trust and of um, like collectiveness of the group. But if they both feel like they've really adequately put in, you know, like I really want to stay, I really want to leave. If they both feel that that has really been heard and held by the collective, then they'll come to some sort of conclusion. They'll be like, Oh yeah. I guess I, I guess I, I guess I am fine leaving. Like you really want to get some sleep or, Oh, I guess I am fine staying. You, you really are enjoying the dancing here. And, and like, they actually want that, like in the context of being part of this collective, this relates to the whole utopia thing from earlier. They actually want that. Yeah. Now, if that pattern continues, they're going to go into a space where they're like, we need to redesign something here. Like we need to bring two cars so that you can go home earlier and I can stay. Or we need to find different kinds of parties that don't tire you out so much. Or we need to get you a nap in the afternoon so that you are more able to stay out later. Or we need to um, have parties at our house yeah. so that you can go to bed while I keep entertaining people. Like, we need to find some solution that actually satisfies both of us. Um, you know, if, if, if this is a, a big deal and it might be that it just goes back and forth, right? Like it's just, you know, sometimes you do this, sometimes you do that. And it's like actually fine. But again, it's not a compromise because you're actually deeply sensing into what each person both wants. And, um, and so it's like, even if in this moment, we pick a solution that looks like just what you wanted, it is actually, it can actually be what we both wanted because I want you to be satisfied and, uh, and I can, we can sense the degree to which we both care about this. And so as long as it doesn't build up, like we keep doing it your way and not my way, then you can actually have a shared sense of like what we want. I love these. Okay. That's not the clearest I, I could possibly articulate <laughs> no, that, but I feel relatively satisfied. I, I love, what do you, what do you think I to bring up? <laughs> I buy it. I, I love these examples because what you're doing is bringing the complexity and like, multifacetedness of human desire and needs alive, right? In in the wilderness, there's a survival component and making it on the trip of like canoeing or kayaking. In a relationship, there's the sense that we want to play an infinite game 
with each other, right? Um, I think what happens when, as soon as people start working is the easiest thing to do is sort of do it how most other people are doing. And in large companies, it's, well, the most important thing is like profit. And then that Mm. gets even simplified down to the highest ranking persons in securities and pet peeves. So oftentimes you're, you're sort of just serving, you're, you're kayaking with a bunch of different people and the person out front is just happens to be the loudest and most powerful. So everyone just starves because that person always eats. Right. Mm. (laughs) And it sort of works as long as you're ignoring that people have lives, needs, they're hungry, um, and things like that. Um, and I think a lot, a lot of what people are realizing when they go self-employed or, um, even just coming to this awareness in big organizations, I think remote work did this for people in enormous ways is like, Oh, I have other needs. I shouldn't compromise just because, the company mm-hmm. is busy or has to do all these things. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that. And this is what makes it so damn hard, right? Is because the easiest thing to do is like, well, all these people have all these needs, but like, it's just easier if we pretend they're just workers, they're just showing up and they're just responsible for tasks. Not that they mm-hmm. have like, envy, um, jealousy, um, ambition, all these things that just make everything resistance, you know? Uh, so yeah. Would you say that like, it's basically just about creating some sort of meta process, like a, like a way of talking about what you're talking about, because I encountered this too. in some of my coaching with organizations is like, they're like, we need a process. I'm like, well, you mm. don't even have a process for talking about process. So how are you ever going to do this? Um, so often yeah. what, they, what, I, what I have them do first is establish a team that's only responsibility is talking about the process. Oh, neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be curious to explore more what your what your corporate consulting and stuff has been like, um, like, you know, recently with all of this. Um, but yeah, like, I think that there are there are processes, but even before that, there are something like um, something like beliefs or assumptions or paradigms or something that can dramatically facilitate or get in the way of being able to um, come together uh, broadly broadly construed. And so, like you know, one of these things is um, people often have a belief, explicit or not, that if I think one thing and you think another thing, and these things seem to be different then one of us must be wrong. Common belief that people have. But it turns out that um, your, you know, your left eye and your right eye see different worlds. They, they, see slightly, they see the world from slightly different angles. They, in some sense, disagree about what's, what is going on. But the disagreement isn't actually that one of them is wrong. It's just that there are two different vantage points. And if you try to argue it, then you miss out on depth perception. Um, which is like the actual benefit of having these, having this difference is not like fighting it out, but like using it to go deeper. So, you know, if you have an assumption that if we disagree, one of us must be wrong, then you're going to have a lot harder of a time finding the depth perception between your two views. Um, on the, on the flip side, you know, um, or like, you know, on the other end of the sort of, uh, (laughs) perception, 
uh, sense making agency or like action kind of loop um, or or values or something. It's like if if I want something and you want something else and these things seem to be incompatible. I mean, they maybe even are the way that they're stated. They're just like straightforwardly incompatible. Um, one can have a sort of assumption. Again, it could be explicit or it could be implicit that how this situation is going to be resolved is that one of us is going to overpower the other and and assert, you know, like my my way or the highway kind of thing, or that we're going to end up with a compromise. But that's not in some important sense true. We could find a thing that both of us like at least as much as the sort of theoretical I win you lose option. Like there's there is no reason why such a thing couldn't exist in principle. And also such things often exist in practice to the extent that they don't. It's because, you know, there's not enough time to find them or not enough creativity or not enough belief that such a thing could in fact exist. Right. Um, or, or there's like not enough slack in the system, right? Like if in fact we are in a, like suppose that we're on the fucking canoe trip and we lose, you know, there's a bunch of us, like 10 of us and we lose 90% of the food and we're like many days out from civilization. Like, that starts to get a lot more dicey. Like, I, you know, um, especially if it's, you know, not a canoe trip, but a desert trip. And so we're also short on water. It's like, you got some really basic survival stuff going on there. But like, that is not, like, even people in poverty are, are not dealing with such acute, direct, obvious, literal, physical absence of food. Like, you know, it's not like, it's not literally the food does not exist within walking distance on a time scale that I would need to get it. like it's um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I can't I can't speak with expertise about the nature of how to find win wins in a context of a lot of poverty. Like it's tough, um, it, you know, and and that's true even of like little local poverty traps like you're too tired to brush your teeth, but you don't want to go to bed before you brush your teeth. But you can't be less tired until you like the, the, the tiny little traps people get in. Right. Like. You know, well, I think it's it's basically. I mean, it's basically just another way of saying these things in groups are very hard. However, we sometimes forget that we aren't fighting for survival sometimes, and there is more kind of possibility and abundance to go around than we can imagine. Yeah, and that and we and that in most situations, we want to at least try finding a solution that deeply satisfies everybody. But that requires kind of, as you were pointing out earlier, that requires actually being with what you really want, not just sort right. of like the surface level, like, Oh, what would be fair? Yeah. Like, or what would be the usual way to resolve such a situation? It's like, no, no, what do I actually want? Maybe I don't care about this thing at all. And I'm happy to just let you have all of it or whatever, like, you know, in the thing. And like, that's, and I'm like, great. You know, I, I just didn't need that. Um, and yeah. So finding those win-wins is kind of, kind of a huge part of, Part of that one of the one of the puzzles somebody was asking me about this just yesterday um is like you know they were saying in my you know i'm i'm starting an organization um and uh i'm trying to figure out whether to hire so she was saying i'm 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 interested in this work you're doing on collective wisdom and i'm trying to figure out whether to um like how how to prioritize it in relation to this nonprofit i'm starting like and concretely i'm gonna have to make hiring decisions and I'm trying to figure out to what extent should I be hiring people based on their ability to just execute on concrete stuff. 
um, you know, to just do good work versus on their ability to do something like come into sync with the group. Like, how do I prioritize those factors, given that, like, pragmatically, you know, I obviously if I found someone who just had tons of both, that would be great. But insofar as I'm going to find myself making trade-offs between these two things, where do I make that trade-off? And from my perspective, this is currently kind of an open research question. Like, clearly these both matter. Um, it depends a bit on like what time scale you're doing. You know, if you if you just have, you know, a one-off concrete project, maybe you just want to hire someone on Fiverr who has proven that they can execute on the thing. Like, obviously, in that case, that, you know, by contrast, if you're like trying to find like your co-founder for like a multi-decade whatever like you're gonna really want someone that you can really talk to and like you know as and as long as they have enough of the relevant skills like that's going to be more useful than if you've got someone who's got all the skills but you can't get on the same page about what you're trying to do right um but then it's like in between it's like okay what do you do and also like what is the best available technology for deepening your capacity to come into sync given two individuals like given given who you're starting with how how well can you learn how to do that together um and yeah when i said i was working on collective intelligence and so on these are some of the questions that i'm kind of looking at with that it's like how do you how do you learn how to do that how can we show other people how to do that like what's um how deep does it go like what what does it feel like for a group to get really really in sync yeah um, you've written about, you know, I've had some taste of that, but you've written about this phrase participating in an attitude. I think you might've been referring to Twitter. Mm. Um, but does this relate somewhat? I think so. Yeah. It's it, like, um, so that, that phrase came up in the context of a thread that I had where I found that this, uh, somebody had made a, uh, an app that reminded me a lot of Complice. And there was, there was some energy of like, competitive fear that arose in me like oh no is he gonna take my customers and then i was like honestly like you know it's still the case that only uh something like fifteen thousand people have ever tried complice like um it's a very small number ultimately right um and then you know some hundreds of those are, are paying customers and so it's like this guy can succeed and I can succeed like right. at, at what we're doing. And if he makes something that's actually just entirely better on every front, then like, hell, I would want to use it, you know? Um, and so it's like, there was sort of an attitude of like finding, finding the win wins of like, you know, given that I love doing design, design thinking and um, you know, looking at interaction design and so forth. And I like doing business strategy and so on. Like, dude, can I help you with this? Like, you know, rather than kind of taking an attitude of, oh, this guy's a competitor. Um, and so, yeah, I would say there's a similar thing where like the attitude I'm talking about wanting to invite people to participate in is one of finding win-wins. How can I do more of the kind of thing I want to do? Because, and this is part of like, you know, the real value of diversity in, in like the, the most basic meaning of that is that people have different approaches. So they see different things and they um, they can uh, they want to do different things, and so there are these natural win wins in a way that there wouldn't be if we were all like identical, because um, we would all want to do the same thing. I mean, even that hypothetical is a bit contrived because at the point when everybody is identical, it is hugely evolutionarily fit to become weird 
because it lets you do it lets you do things that other people don't want. So I don't think there actually is an attractor in the space of everybody is identical. Um, it's it even with the level of like identicality that people have, it still leaves so many unexploited niches for going and making a little one person business. Um, and um, yeah. And so it's like participating in an attitude of finding those win-wins, finding where what I want to do and what you want to do can come together. Yeah. I wanted to shift gears a little bit. uh, Talk about some of the things you, you wrote about. You have like so many techniques to like getting this stuff. Like I think a, a big challenge of working on your own is actually doing this stuff. You once you figure out what do I like doing over long stretches of time, actually mm-hmm. getting yourself to do them and take action on them. You mm-hmm. highlighted a couple techniques, which I'd love to just explore the thinking or like how they've worked um, behind mm-hmm. them. Uh, one is making an appointment with your saner self. Uh, mm-hmm. I loved this idea. It, it sort of felt like cognitive behavioral therapy in like sort of um, communicating with, or maybe like IFS type uh, stuff. But yeah, talk to me about like making an appointment with your saner self when you're like struggling to to do something you want to do. Yeah. So it's, there's sort of a few, a few lenses on that. I mean, one of them is like, even before you're struggling, it's just like, what does it look like to set aside time to have, have a conversation with yourself to, to look at whatever there is to look at about what you want and, and how you're going to do it. And that a huge part of the value that people get from taking the time for a meditation retreat is not even the teacher saying anything at the retreat or whatever, or going to a workshop. It's not what they say at the workshop. It's just the fact that you spent an entire day looking at your stuff. Um, and I actually think that, um, relatedly, like, something that more people could benefit from is like, instead of like paying a teacher for a multi-day retreat, I mean, you may need that for various reasons, but um, if instead, if you have a friend that you trust a lot, um, basically you and the friend take a weekend each where you hold space for each other's retreat. So it's like, like one, one weekend is like, you know, Paul's retreat and Malcolm just shows up and is like, they're supporting Paul to do introspection for like three days straight. Um, and, um, and that could be introspection on the level of like strategy, writing out like your goals and stuff and like thinking about that, or it could be introspection on the level of, um, you know, deep emotional work or whatever. But the point is like, what we actually have is unlike a workshop where, you know, you only get, you know, an hour of sustained attention from the, you know, instructor before they have to move on to somebody else. And you're just then kind of doing your own thing. It's like, we have three days straight of attention just on you. Um, and so it's like, you can really kind of go deep into stuff and unpack it. And, you know, you have more working memory because there's somebody else there holding it with you. Um, and have you done this? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did it with a friend of mine. We didn't actually end up end up swapping and we were sort of intending to, but then a lot of things happened, including COVID. Um, but we um yeah, we we just rented an Airbnb for like three days and just spent the entire time looking at ways in which I was feeling stuck. And it was really healing. It was re- really powerful um on a whole bunch of levels. Now you do actually have to have adequate techniques in order to do that. Like this is this is a little bit of an advanced thing, maybe, right? Like if you if you were I don't, but I mean, even there, like everybody has 
more wisdom than they're actually accessing most of the time because they're most of the time in too much of a rush to just slow down and find it. So like, I think unless you would be likely to kind of go off the deep end and get dysregulated in some way from doing such a thing, I think it's basically a good idea. Even if, even if you're just working with some basic goal setting techniques or just like trying to put into practice the advice from some book you just read that you yeah. like, I think that would, I think that would all be worthwhile. Yeah. I liked your senior self technique. It was sort of put a appointment on the calendar deal with like bring attention to something you're struggling with and then give the advice you would give a friend in that same situation. Right. And oftentimes you can short of short circuit your own automatic processes to say, Oh, okay. I can. Yeah. And and funny thing about that. Like, so I think they've actually studied people give people come up. People are better at solving certain kinds of problems when they step out of their own shoes. So like, um, you, like you ask people like, what do you, what do you think you should do in this situation that you're in, that you're struggling with? And they go, Oh, I don't know. I mean, I just, uh, I really, I just, I can't, whatever, whatever. And then they're like, what would you say to a friend who is in this situation? They'd be like, well, uh, I mean, why don't you try talking to that person? It seems like they understand something about it. And then maybe you could get them to like help you talk with the other person. And then they're like, shit, that's a good idea. Um, and part of what's going on there, as far as I can tell from what I've, what I've learned about how brains work or something, how, how minds work, is that people literally have like beliefs about themselves that aren't, that aren't identity beliefs. It's not a belief about who everybody thinks I am exactly, but it's a belief about the world that only applies to them. So it's, it's something like if I ask for what I want, um, you know, everyone will hate me and I'll die alone in a hole with no friends. I mean, it's not anyway, something, something sort of to that effect. Now they don't think if anyone asks for what they want, that person will die alone in a hole with no friends. They just think that about themselves and it causes them to not notice certain kinds of moves because from their first person perspective about themselves, those moves are just not available. Um, Even though they're really obvious once the person is looking at their situation from the outside. Having, so having said that, like one update I would make to that saner self post since I wrote it is I would acknowledge like sometimes you're going to come up with advice that you don't feel comfortable taking because it would yeah. disturb some thing about your sense of self. And well, it seems th- it, like that's okay. It seems it might just be more beneficial just to generate more ideas. Like just that yeah, practice totally. of expanding imagination is something that I think so many people would benefit from. Definitely. Yeah. Another thing you wrote about was uh, just this idea of starting small and trying stuff. This kind of connects back to what we were talking about mm-hmm. at the beginning. Um, but what does that mean to you? I've I've sort of implemented a simpler thing, um, a similar thing, which is which I've called ship quit and learn, which is basically design finite experiments that I have to ship, and the only goal is to kind of learn something. Mm, cool. Yeah. Um, start small. Not sure what that connects with. I mean, one thing I like to do is like, it feels connected to a thing that I think is not quite the same thing, but it's maybe related enough, which is like, like rather than trying to like perfect a blog post and then publish it, like just throw out a tweet that just tries to say in one tweet, what the blog post is trying to say. And like, you can get a lot of, deeper insight from just doing that like and how people respond to it and so forth or you know just write a scrappy thread 
Um, yeah. I mean, like, there's something to be said for thoroughness, but there's also, I, I actually had an interesting conversation with this, uh, with, um, with Andy Matuschik about this. Um, we met up here in SF a couple weeks ago and I was describing how my, you know, my software company, Complice, could not have succeeded if I wasn't very non-perfectionistic about it, like very willing to cut so many corners and, you know, have kludgy solutions that were half-baked and that are challenging to build upon now. But like, if I hadn't done them at the time, things would have just fallen apart. And he was, he was struck by how that was so different from this attitude that I seem to have towards this um, collective intelligence stuff and collective wisdom and super organisming and so on, which is like very thorough and like trying to like really get it right in a certain way, like trying to really nail it. And he was like, that's interesting that you have like, you know, on the technical and, you know, strategic levels, like so much willingness to like be, sl be sloppy and scrappy and stuff. Um, but then you have this orientation towards the like teamwork elements that's like, no, like go really slow and <laughs> meticulously. Um, I don't know what, what sense to make of that actually, to some extent. Like I I still haven't like, like he pointed out something interesting and I'm actually genuinely not sure like how, why that is in me and whether I think it's actually in some sense, like, like whether I would advise other people to take a similar approach. Like, is it um, simply because the code is hidden and sort of the, the words you're thinking you're doing is more out there in public? Well, it's it's not that it's not that I'm taking a thorough attitude with respect to my writing. Um, it's yeah. that like with respect to the actual like coming into synergy of groups, it's like I have this attitude of like like let's go all the way kind of thing rather than like let's kind of you know half-ass this and like be be you know collaborative enough to get stuff done but like not really worry about like whatever and, and i think that like part of what's going on there is um i mean the nature of it it just is different right like with with complice i was trying to build a business and so the most important thing was just is this working for my existing customers and can it like can it scale enough to make it to the next stage whereas with this collective intelligence stuff like the thing i'm trying to do is like figure out what the future of human thinking looks like um, it's a much it's a much deeper project and not one that is trying to hit short term feedback stuff in the same like it's sort of yeah yeah the, which relates to like that's not really start small and yeah. try stuff that's like start big and try stuff right but even there it's like there is still totally a start small oh, for sure. like I you know like the the sense that I have is like you know okay you want to be practicing this group synergy stuff on really small scales it's like you know uh two days ago um i was uh i was out at a um sort of festival thing and some friends and i went for a hike and um we just kind of you know left the grounds and we were kind of like okay we want to go up um and we decided to try following this riverbed um so it was somebody i was i was close to and then a couple people we just met that that earlier that day who also wanted to go for a hike and so we were kind of figuring out, okay, well, let's go up this riverbed. And I had like, you know, sturdier clothes on than the others. And I was kind of bushwhacking a bit at the front. And there was kind of this tension of like, I wanted to keep going. They wanted to turn around. And it's like, okay, they, right there is a little case study in like group decision-making. Like, how do we decide? Do we go forward? Do we go back? Do we split up? And like, what are the factors there? And how do we figure out what we want? And 
I ended up encouraging the group to go substantially further than they initially wanted. And I think they were ultimately fairly satisfied with some experience that, that they had as a result, but I, but they were definitely taking a bet on me. Like it might've been less pleasant and they might've been kind of annoyed. And I was taking a bet that like it would pan out. Right. And like, and you know, we were feeling into it and um, yeah. So um, it's like that, you know, that's another start small case. You know, it's like if you want to practice doing super organisming type stuff, like, you know, go on a road trip with someone like, Road trips are a great context in which you're like kind of or or a hike, but like um, like either of the 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 neat thing about a road trip compared to a hike is that there's sort of a clearer role differential. Like the person in the passenger seat is sometimes like literally feeding the driver, you know. Um, and there's also you know some some constraints that make the whole thing more interesting. And I think people are actually in a lot of cases quite good at at figuring this stuff out in little local decisions like a road trip. I mean, sometimes it's a shit show, but like. You can get, you know, like compared to the kinds of messier decisions that you'd be trying to make in like doing business strategy or design or something the just the basic stuff of like, okay, yeah, when do we want to stop? Like, do you need to stretch your legs? Do I need to go to the bathroom? Do we need to get some more Gatorade? Like what's, you know, and, um, you know, and just dealing with the contingencies that show up like, oh man, the cheese totally melted on everything. Like, fuck. yeah, you know, like how did. How do you deal with, I mean, I like talking about this stuff, but a lot of people just don't really enjoy participating in these kind of like meta conversations. How do you think about that in the broader aspect of like what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, that's a good question. So I I think it's a few things. Like one is there's some amount of like what I'm doing at the moment, you know, is going to have some early adopter-ish type people, you know, people who are more drawn to it than others and in some sense i'm focusing on those people like you know i don't ultimately i i see this as a as a cultural platform evolution that will spread to all of humanity in the same way that the um and not just from me but from all the pockets where it's emerging uh in the same way that like you know agriculture and writing you know produced changes that just spread to all of humanity but um but it's not going to spread equally or linear linearly or or all at once or anything like that. And, um, and so, so two things on that front, like one is that like, you know, the people who are more drawn to it now are going to be the people who want to do more meta ish stuff. Right. Um, and that's, that's just fine. Um, two is that I think we'll get better at, uh, something like teaching or training or, or conveying to people both, how to do this meta stuff and and how it can be fun and and satisfying and stuff and also how to come into like deeper group flow without needing to have so much meta right like i think i think that the the kind of heady meticulous quality that a lot of this has right now is partially because we're actually in some ways still really new to it like it's still um like the kinds of questions I, that I'm investigating in the way that I'm investigating them are, you know, maybe 50 years old as questions. Like I've got this old book called synergetics by Ann Arthur cools written in 1970 something. And, you know, it's very much looking at some of these questions and it's not like people didn't care about teamwork before they, they did, but they didn't have the same attention to, um, or, or care about community or family or whatever. But there, there's a, there's a deeper 
something that um, that we're attending to about like group flow in a fully general way. So like with team sports, you get group flow, but like the, the objective is external. Everyone can see it. You can see if the ball's in the opposing team's net, you can see what the score is. The, the, ex, the, the objective is external. With group flow, where part of what you're caring for is everybody's internal needs, whether those are like, I need to be fed and, you know, um, like sheltered and various you know, physiological things, or whether those are needs that are like, I need to be singing regularly. Like that's a need I have you know, um, uh, in a, in a sense. And so it's like finding ways to like synergically satisfy all of those is a totally different kind of thing to get group flow around than, um, an external thing like a, like a sports, a sports team, or even an external thing, like simply a company objective. Right. Um, yeah. And sort of like fully general group flow is kind of the, kind of the puzzle. Yeah. It's funny thinking about sports. It's uh, sports is one of these weird domains where the goals are often incentivized with the greatest human flourishing, um, especially at the highest levels. Um, but in many of the other domains we participate in, it's not really aligned that way. And it, mm, there's kind of a compromising of the body or something yeah, that it, occurs in, well, for the sake of like. I always find it funny when people startup. say the phrase late capitalism. Like to me, it still feels like super early, early, early capitalism it, mm. in the sense that like we're still just making this up. And like this is such an early um, way of thinking about forming larger groups than were normal 200 years ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends in part on like guess, where you're drawing yeah, the boundaries sure. but what what you're calling <laughs> capitalism or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. I, I guess what I'm talking about is just like the scale of doing things um, with enormous groups of people that we didn't really do before. Right. But yeah. So one question I wanted to ask you, this is the one you asked me to ask you, um, which I found fascinating. Um, what is at this center of the pathless path? Like, wh what does that mean to you? Um, I didn't, I don't know how, how I'd answer it, but I think what you're getting at is sort of the inherent like mystery and uncertainty of the world, but I'd love to hear mm. your response. Yeah. Well, I think that a phrase very similar to that one, I think shows up in, uh, some Dzogchen writing. Mm. Um, you know, uh, Vajrayana Buddhist writing, Tibetan Buddhist. Um, uh, I think Ken McLeod has a book with a, actually a very similar title or something, The Trackless Path um, or something. And so I do wonder about the connection between those. Um, there's something about the, you can pretend that you know what the future is going to hold. Like it's, it's possible to have a stance that acts like it knows what the future is going to hold. and um, and people do this all the time, you know, plan planning oh, yeah. as a, as an activity is to some degree, like fantasizing a future and then imagining you can control it and then figuring out what, what you intend to do in all of those, all of those futures. And, you know, as Eisenhower said or whatever, you know, planning is indispensable, but plans are useless. It's like the act of planning causes you to notice a whole bunch of stuff. But if you're trying to just run your life from the plan, then you, you immediately encounter 
things are not as you imagine they would be. And like, you know, step three, turn left doesn't make sense anymore. Once step two, walk forward, got blocked by a obstacle. And now you can't turn left because there's a wall. Like it's just. Um, so I imagine that what part of what you're doing with the pathless path is using entrepreneurship as kind of a, a vehicle for um, something like spiritual growth, sort of like how Victor Wooten's book, the music lesson uses learning music as a, uh, it's like that, that book is arguably a, a spirituality teaching disguised as a music book or a music book disguised as a spirituality teaching. You can kind of see it either way. And like, similarly, my sense is that part of what you're pointing out is the kind of like stepping into the unknown has a, um, has a spiritual quality to it. I think I just made a little jump there. It's like, why is this spiritual, right? Like, why is this, uh, um, what, what is of the nature of the spirit to this? Um, see if I can say anything about that. Well, I think that resonates. I mean, just to, yeah. I think what I'm trying to say is that there's something deeper worth finding, like being on a constrained path where everyone sort of agrees there is a defined future and way of orienting your life might limit you from going in that deeper direction. And then mm. that deeper direction has a whole bunch of stories we can attach to it. Entrepreneur, founder, um, solopreneur, right. creator, whatever. They're kind of silly and pointless. It doesn't matter. Mm, right. Like those, those are themselves also paths. Right. So it's not exactly entrepreneurship, um, except in the sense of, of in which but, like, yeah, go yeah ahead. but those shake things up enough that, it's going to make you uncomfortable and notice more things, which then might lead to more interesting paths that you didn't know were possible or even thought about before. Um, yeah. So it's a, this sort of like endless journey. And it, I guess it's a shift from a finite game to an infinite game. Um, but mm -hmm. I think also what I was trying to convey in my book is that it might also suck, especially in the short term. <laughs> Yeah, but that could be worth it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've noticed that when I think about the things that I've done in my life that I've spent the most time on, accomplice being one case study of it, it's like there's the sense of like, I would I would not have managed to do accomplice if I had had any idea how much work it would be like when I started unless I'd also known how much more satisfying and worthwhile it was than I could have imagined. So it's like, it was both so much more work that I had right. envisioned and also so much more worth it. And I found a lot of things are like that. Yeah. I think writing a book was like that for me. Um, mm. Probably one of the hardest things I've done, but also one of the most rewarding Nice. But yeah, so wanted to ask you some rapid fire questions. Let's do it. I'll see if I can be brief. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you I'll give you one breath for each at most. That, that's how I constrain myself. I can take I can take pretty long breaths though. Okay, hit me up. Your do you have a path role model? Tim Ferriss 
was kind of what what you know was was for me um now more like jordan hall awesome yeah a book or piece of content podcast whatever um that's been inspiring to you in the past few years oh a few years I'm just going to say a few weeks and I'm going to say that I really enjoyed listening to John Vervecki and Jonathan Peugeot talk about, uh, how did they phrase it? Um, it was something about like how to actually create, um, angels and like new, new demigods out of collective forces. Wow. Have checked that a couple of videos on YouTube. I'll have to check that one out and, uh, we'll link that up. Um, What's one thing you wish you did earlier on your journey? Hmm. Something what what actually comes to mind oddly enough is like I wish I'd gotten back into music sooner. I mean, I don't actually have regrets there because it's all so path dependent, but like I, uh, I kind of burned myself out a little bit with the album project in 2012 and stopped. Um, well, it was partially that and partially I got really intensely, I got to save the world and like whatever. And I think, I think it, I think I lost touch with the ways that, that music can soothe me. And I, I could have benefited from having more of that a few years, like in like 2013 to 2015, 2016. Uh, anything you want to leave uh, for readers, uh, <laughs> listeners, um, to follow more of your stuff? Any pitch you want to make them? Any uh, call to action? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we've been talking indirectly a bit about my my software, and definitely um, that has the potential to change your life. If you feel like you would like to be doing more meaningful stuff with your life, if you are, you know, uh, if you've been following Paul's ideas and so on. And you found yourself being like, Hmm, sure. It would be nice to put this into practice and start thinking about like what I want to do with my life, but you're like not actually doing it. Um, Compost can be a really powerful thing for that. It, it handles goals on pretty much any level of abstraction. And so um, even if things are super nebulous um, and you just want to put in a goal, that's something like make sense of my life. <laughs> it's like Compost will check in with you every day and be like, how are things going towards make sense <laughs> of my great. life? You know? And, and maybe, maybe what that looks like is like, you're in a job and you're like, ah, oh, I probably want to quit, but like, oh, what, what would I even do? And like, you just got those questions. Um, Complice can just help you check in every day. Like, where are you with those, with that questioning process? Like, you know, have you started thinking about what your runway is? I mean, Complice is not going to ask you those things directly, but it's kind of like the saner self thing. It's like Complice is going to, you know, can hold you through that process. So, um, yeah, I would, uh, I would definitely suggest um, uh, checking, checking that out. And, uh, we'll give a custom, a custom link that'll just give an extra week of, uh, of trial for that. Um, and, uh, yeah. And I, I would say like, if you, if you do, if you, if you check into Complice every day for, for three weeks, which is how long you'll have it, like, even if you don't end up buying a subscription to Complice, it can still totally change your life to just have had that experience because it, the experience of how it feels to be looking at like, 
here's my goals. Here's what I deeply care about every day. And just asking, how can I make a little bit more progress towards this? Um, has been life-changing for people, even when they don't go on to subscribe. So, um, yeah, but you do actually have to show up. <laughs> so, um, that's, that's the main thing I'd like to, um, like to invite you to do and feel free to reach out to me, you know, tell me on Twitter what you think of the app. If you try it out, um, even if you're just like, I got three steps in and I got stuck. Like I'm interested to know that. Um, I, I sometimes make big changes based on what people say when it highlights something new and clear and crisp. Very cool. I'll link up to your website as well and your socials. Thanks for joining me today, Malcolm. Yeah, thank you so much, Paul. This has been great. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can of course check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.